Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, the Catholic book blogger, and today we have with us Father Blake Britton, who serves as a parish priest and assistant vocations director in the Diocese of Orlando. He's a regular contributor to the Word on Fire Institute's blog and its Evangelization and Culture Journal. He also co-hosts the Borough Shower podcast with Brandon Vaught. Father Britton earned his bachelor's degree in philosophy from St. John Vianney College Seminary and his master's degree in divinity from St. Vincent de Paul Regional Seminary. He's contributed to two anthologies and has appeared on EWTN, the Catholic Channel, and a number of radio programs and podcasts. He's a classically trained opera singer, pianist, and organist, and is trained in classical Latin and biblical Greek. And today we're discussing his book, Reclaiming Vatican II, What It Really Said, What It Means, and How It Calls Us to Renew the Church. Welcome to the show, Father Blake. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. So I guess to start, um, the obvious first question would be, um, many believe that there's been a general misinterpretation of Vatican II. In light of your book, what are your thoughts? Most certainly, most certainly. And I would say that there's been a misinterpretation on two angles. Uh, On the one hand, you have what is commonly or politically deemed the liberal interpretation that sees Vatican II as year zero in the life of the church and sort of a way to to start afresh, to start anew, to remake, quote-unquote, a more modern church. And then you have the reaction to that liberalism, which is labeled conservatism or traditionalism. Uh, one of the purposes of my book, of course, is to remove those political categorizations, um, which are not appropriate to describe them. And, and I narrow down what actually took place in the five-decade period since the closing sessions of the Second Vatican Council that led to the development of these two camps and their mutual misinterpretations of Vatican II. So... In the beginning of the book, you include uh, a very interesting discussion on the council itself versus post-council, para-council happenings. Can you tell us a bit about that, how that all came down? Yes, yeah, this is a key hermeneutic or a a key paradigm to understand the past 50 years of development in Catholicism. So 
immediately following the Second Vatican Council within a decade, and we hear this from theologians such as Henri de Lubac, who were parity or theological consultants at Vatican II, within a decade following the closing sessions of the Second Vatican Council, there were groups of theologians who were very disappointed with Vatican II. They did not think it was radical enough. Um, in their opinion, it was far too conservative. It did not make the changes they thought should have been made in the church. So you think of someone like Hans Kung or Edward Skilibix. And so they took advantage of the implementation phase of Vatican II not to promote the teachings or the documents as written, but rather to masquerade and proffer their own ideological theologies or their own ideological opinions about what Vatican II should have taught but didn't, and they did it under the auspices of promoting the theology of Vatican II. Just to give one brief example, uh, Edward Skilibix went on tour briefly after the closing sessions of Vatican II, and he began giving instructions at seminary and lectures at universities, talking about the church as the sacrament of the world, and how proud he was of Vatican II and its opening itself to the world through its document Lumen Gentium. The only problem is, is that Vatican II never uses the language of sacrament of the world in a single conciliar document, but rather rejected that title for sacrament of salvation, which has a much more powerful theological significance and actually speaks against the narrative of the church becoming more worldly, but rather the church's mission to evangelize and sacramentalize, to sanctify the world uh, with this kind of missionary fervor. So this parlor trick was done multiple times by these very trusted and highly influential theologians. Now, that ideological narrative that was strewn under the auspice of Vatican II was then amplified uh, drastically because of, of one new invention, which was mass media, technological mass media, and in particular, American mass media, which always interprets things through political perspectives mm -hmm. between left and right. So we started getting documents or uh, columns, news articles on a daily basis that is now covering the Second Vatican Council. This is the first ecumenical council in church history covered by mass media. We start getting news briefs every single day about the liberal bishop, Cardinal Bea, versus the conservative bishop, Archivani, and now they're at each other's throats, and you have the progressive wing of the church that's trying to overcome the traditionalist wing of the church, and they're making this artificial tension, and they're now thrusting onto the church these labels of conservative and liberal, which had never been used to describe the church before in history. Now they've become, unfortunately, defining characteristics of the church, even in Catholic outlets, when you'll hear people describe someone like Supich as liberal and someone like Burke as conservative. Mm -hmm. And those are inappropriate ways to talk about ordinaries of the church because it takes away our, our language and our ability to have deeper conversations about something more important than liberal or conservative, and that is orthodox or unorthodox, that is liturgical or unliturgical, that's true or not true. So these are the kind of categories that are appropriate to the church. And finally, you now have this theological milieu that is not the council teachings and what the council actually taught, but rather these self-deputized interpreters of Vatican II promoting their ideologies. This is amplified by the media outreach, um, who were used as mouthpieces for these theologians and these theological ideals. And then finally, you have the council of the age, as I call it in my book, namely that the 60s and 70s were primed for some form of revolution. We know it was a very turbulent time in world history. You had the Cold War, you had the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement, 
uh, the communistic and socialistic revolutions, liberation theology. So there's just these waves going, not just throughout the church, but throughout the world, and people latched onto these more progressive and paraconciliar ideas, thinking, oh my goodness, even the church, even the church wonderfully is throwing off the shackles of tradition and, and catching up with the times. And that became the kind of language that um, that even is prevalent nowadays in certain mm-hmm. circles. So all those things together uh, construct what I, building upon Delubach's thesis, uh, deemed the para-council, or Delubach's even more uh, fervent when he says it's the anti-council. It's this anti-spirit of the Second Vatican Council that's been utilized for the past 50 years to promote not the teachings of the Church, but rather personal theological opinions. So, looking at this from a 50,000-foot view, was this chaos and confusion that has come about because of what you just talked about there, the the political um, spin and put on the council, was it planned or simply an opportunity that was taken advantage of? I would not say it's planned. Uh, and again, I don't nobody really has data uh, to, to to suggest or to support that thesis, but uh, it most certainly was taken advantage of for sure. If you look at how how these theologians were quite intentional in taking advantage of this time period, especially those first couple of decades after the closing session, to ram through their own opinions. They saw that as an open door to not promote the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. And it's actually quite tragic because if you read the documentation of Vatican II in and of itself, apart from the commentaries by some of these post-conciliar or paraconciliar theologians, they're magnificent. They're magnificent. And it's very difficult to find things to disagree with, even among traditionalists. But what's happened is with traditionalism, so to be traditional is a good thing. Traditionalism is a bad thing, any ism like that, right? Um, but traditionalism is actually a reaction, not to Vatican II, but to what they think Vatican II is. Mm. And, and that's something that, that we have to address openly and explicitly. Um, and this is true, by the way, not just within the church, but across many spectrums nowadays, because you have many people who no longer go to the primary resources of, of things, but hear everything secondhand. So if you have not read the documents of Vatican II, if you have not studied the history of an ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, and you listen to one podcast or one YouTube commentator criticize Vatican II, that's not appropriate. <laughs> You need to do due diligence. You've got to study, or else you're not being intellectually uh, in- integritous. You're not being having an integrity to the proper truth and to the proper dignity that this merits. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that kind of keeps popping up in my own research, and, and it particularly was written about a lot during the pontificate of Pope Benedict, is this idea that, well, it takes a council 50 years for everything to kind of percolate and come into mm-hmm. to being the way it was. Well, we're there, and it still doesn't seem to have percolated. <laughs> what seems to be yeah. the delay with this particular council? I would say that it is percolating. Uh, I, I wouldn't give that 50-year time frame like a strict observance, because even after the Council of Trent, it took nearly a century for the Trentonian reforms to take root. Okay. And that's something else I think that we have to be mindful of when you look at councils in general, going all the way back to the ecumenical councils of Ephesus, Chalcedon, and Nicaea, and even more so with Trent because you had the ramifications of the Protestant Reformation. But the Council of Trent, things were not hunky-dory after Trent. It was a disaster. Um, and this is why you have people like Charles Borromeo, Philip Neri, Teresa Babila, John of the Cross, some of these heavy hitters come in and within the first century or so after the closing sessions of Trent work vehemently 
to properly implement the reforms. Uh, but the church exists in, in this organic nature. The church exists in development, as John Henry Cornwell Newman teaches us in his wonderful text. And I don't say that to criticize Trent in any way. As a matter of fact, the Council of Trent's a magnificent council, quoted multiple times in Vatican II as a point of reference. It's just the nature of the beast when doing these things. So I think what's happened is that we've come as a church, mainly through post-modernity, through technology, to expect things immediately to take place because we go on Amazon and we order something and it comes the next day. <laughs> but that's not the case with dogmatic constitutions. That's not the case with church reform. You know, uh, the church moves. It's not turning a boat. It's turning an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Uh, and so it's going to take a while for things to get there. So I would actually be a little bit more conservative with that timeline. I would say that we're already seeing signs of hope, especially if you look at younger clergy, younger bishops. If you look at a lot of the, the, the laity who are very much open to the beauty of tradition, to the beauty of the sacred liturgy, to the writings of the church fathers. So overall, with the younger and millennial and Gen Z Catholics, and also some of the Gen Xers, you're starting to see this turn and return to the sources of Catholicism. But we still have, you know, at least another two to three decades to go, for sure, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So, pretty open-ended question here, because I want to give you the ability to uh, freely speak on this one, but in your opinion, what should have happened after the closing of the council? <laughs> yeah, Monday quarterbacking, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's of course it's always unjust to try to critique after the fact and say what we could have done, but but I could say this. I could say this. Um, some of the things that were done were done properly. It's just that they weren't seen or received properly. I'll give a practical example. Uh, St. Paul VI, after the closing sessions of Vatican II, publishes a wonderful book entitled Jubilate Deo. This was a little booklet that was given to all the bishops of the world and the superiors of religious orders so that they could be utilized to teach the laity and the religious the Latin chants of the sacred liturgy, which are supposed to be required and maintained in the Latin rite, according to the Second Vatican Council's document, Sacrum Sancti Concilium. So the Holy See went through the proper steps, and the Holy Father promulgated a, an actual pamphlet, a booklet to instruct the faithful on the Latin language. But what happened? Nobody used it. Nobody mm -hmm. used it. Where's that booklet now? We can't find it anywhere. I have a copy that I found at the bottom of my seminary library stacked with books that were going to be thrown away. <laughs> but, but I'm sitting here thinking, my God, like we were given this amazing tool that was supposed to be handed out and distributed throughout the universal church, and just no one used it. It just ended up gathering dust. So I think there were a lot of good resources available immediately after the council by Orthodox theologians. If you look at someone like Carol Wojtyla, for example, um, one of the ways that they that they did it after Vatican II was different bishops were entrusted with the implementation phases in their particular nations. However, that was done. You know, we go on till the cows come home about the improper proper ways that was done. But there was one of the practical components. Carol Wojtyla was the representative for Poland, for example, and he goes back and is entrusted with. Um, implementing the reforms of Vatican II. So um, those are things that I think were done, but just weren't followed through properly. That being said, what could we do now? Well, we can make up for lost ground, because one of the major fallouts that did not take place after Vatican II is that the laity and the clergy were not properly educated on the vision of the council. So what took place instead, unfortunately, is that a lot of people received other people's opinions on right. Vatican II, but not Vatican II. So this is where you got someone, I, I you know, speak to uh, college students and theologians frequently, uh, specifically on this topic since the publication of my book, 
And it's shocking to me to hear how many of them criticize maybe some of the points that I make because they say, well, Vatican II obviously got rid of Latin, and you say that it didn't. And I asked them, well, where, where did you read that? Well, I haven't read the Sacrosanct of the Chilean, but I just heard my professor telling me that it got rid of Latin. It's like, well, there's the problem. <laughs> there's the problem. You know, we can't just take our local priest's word for it. We can't just take, you know, our professor's word for it or one of our friends. We got to go back and to study these things. And I think that did not happen after Vatican II the way that it should have. I would love to see, I would love to see throughout the church, a year of the Second Vatican Council, just like we have a year of faith and what have you, and spend a whole year just focusing only on the four major documents and where every single lay person reads the four major documents. I don't want interpretations. I don't want people's opinion. I just want them to read the documents. And then we could have prayerful discernment about the implementation of those documents. So that wasn't really done in the past 50 years. You know, you raised an interesting point there that just popped something up uh, in my head a bit. You talked about listening to um, just the opinion of your local pastor. I think some of the things we fall into, and not just in the church, but in life in general, um, is we tend to operate in these silos. Yes. And we forget that the church was meant to be universal, not individual silos. Because, you know, the Catholic Church is universal. If you want to operate in a silo, then go down to your corner pastor that started his own church at the corner of the street. Right. Yes, that you're absolutely correct. It's important for us to see the wealth and the depth of Catholicism. It's a really magnificent thing. Uh, I have this series that I teach at my, uh, at my local parishes called the Splendor of Our Faith series. And it, it's very aptly and intentionally named the splendor of our faith, and it actually goes to the history of the whole Catholic Church. So I start with the apostolic age, and I go up to the post-conciliar period. And in that time, all I'm doing is feeding the people of God the universality and the depth and breadth of Catholicism, which is superbly magnificent. If you look at the Norman conquest of 1066 and the Frankenization of the Anglo-Saxons and how that eventually leads to the Christianization Catholicism of Europe and the, that ties the Protestant Reformation, it's just unbelievable to me how all these things interact with one another. But we're not accustomed to studying these things and thinking widely because you're right, we're in our little silos, we're in our little worlds. And some of our parishes become fiefdoms, <laughs> you know, with little kings and princes. And it's like, no, 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 we're supposed to be, we're part of a diocese, and that diocese is part of a, a province, and that province is started part of the universal church. <laughs> I mean, we're just coming out of an age, uh, maybe 20 years ago, where there was uh, parish boundaries, and for shame on you if you crossed over those boundaries and attended mass in a neighboring parish. <laughs> oh, especially if the neighboring parish was Irish or Italian, forget about it. <laughs> So, building upon that a little bit, I think there's a two-sided coin here. So, I'll ask this question, this following in two questions. First, what is the clergy's role in the current state of the church in the path forward? Wonderful. So, number one, the way that the Catholic Church operates is always through personal sanctity. So, even before we do anything, it's about being, it's about prayer, contemplation. This is why Jesus very clearly gives the prerogative when the interaction between Martha and Bethany, uh, excuse me, Martha and Mary in Bethany, when he says, Mary has chosen the better part. Sitting at the feet of Christ is the presupposition of missionary and evangelical activity in the church. Unless we are contemplatives, mystics, men and women of prayer, this goes with the priest as well. We cannot hope for the church to be reformed 
if our priests are not holy men, if our clergy are not saints. Hans von Balthasar makes this very clear in a wonderful book that he wrote on the office of the chair of St. Peter and the papacy. And he says one of the greatest tragedies nowadays is that we've separated sanctity from clergy <laughs> mm. and that we see them as two different realities when in the ancient church, it's not a coincidence that almost 100% of the bishops were martyrs and saints. Mm. There, there was a direct connection between the notion of episcopacy, the sacerdotal office, the diaconal office, and sanctity. So that's very important for us to reclaim that dignity as priests. We are supposed to be holy shepherds who sit at the feet of Christ in Eucharistic adoration, who pray our breveries, who are men of study and of prayer. And then from that, naturally, our flock will be sanctified. So you look at the writings of some of the saints, and they'll tell us, if a priest is holy, then their flock will be holy. Mm -hmm. If the priest is regular, mediocre, then the flock will be lost. Right. So we have to have saintly, we have to have holy priests. So it really does start from the top down. Fulton mm -hmm. J. Sheens says that in his book on the priesthood. He says the church is a top-down mm -hmm. uh, reality because it does come from the holiness of the shepherds. So that's number one. We, we need clergy, including myself, and I always preach to myself first, who are men of holiness, who study, who know these truths and ingrain them into their own flesh and bone. Now then flowing from that, the Second Vatican Council is very clear in Sacrosanctum Concilium in Lumen Gentium, as well as Gaudium et Spes, that we need to have something called a liturgical apostolate. The primary responsibility of the clergy is the sacred liturgy to ensure that we have pious, reverent, solemn liturgies, and that the people of God are sanctified and encounter the liturgy actively and knowingly. And when I say actively, I don't mean to make Mass a sing-along or, you know, Mickey Mouse Funhouse. <laughs> what I'm talking about here is actively knowing the mystery to understand the history and the theology of the liturgy through patristics the sacred scriptures or do we have workshops on these things you know before we bring in a popular speaker to give a talk on discipleship or something like that those are good things before we do any of that when was the last time we had a parish-wide workshop on the history of the sacred liturgy and the sacrifice of the holy mass mm -hmm. these are the kind of things that we need to focus on first and vatican ii is very clear about that so the liturgical apostolate and then, of course, accompanied with the catechetical apostolate. So teaching not just the dogmatic constitutions of the church, such as the incarnation, the immaculate conception, etc., but also the history of the church, specifically through patristics, which was renewed in the two centuries preceding the Second Vatican Council through the Ressourcement Movement, the Ressourcement Movement. Um, we have now patristic resources available to us, writers of the Church Fathers, that were not available to the Council of Trent, that were not available to generations of Catholics, but now they are for us. How many of us have read the writings of the Church Fathers? Mm -hmm. And yet we're one of the first generations since the Apostolic Age to have access to tens of thousands of pages of document, documentation in the vernacular of the writings of our Church Fathers. So these are the kind of things that I think need to be done. Mm -hmm. Now, the second part. What is the laity's role? Yes. So laity, first and foremost, holiness, like I was saying before, prayer, becoming a saint. Uh, but part of that will be personal study. The laity, Lumen Gentium, Chapter 5, Universal Call to Holiness, the laity need to take responsibility for their own spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, it's in cooperation always with the hierarchy and with the magisterium, but at the same time, the hierarchy and the magisterium cannot replace the personal culpability and responsibility of a Christian for discipleship. 
And if we know these things are now available to us, such as the writings of Vatican II, the writings of the Church Fathers, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we have a moral obligation as a baptized Christian to study these aspects. The sacred scriptures and the sacred tradition on equal terms, we cannot say that we just study the Bible. We're supposed to know the ecumenical councils of the church just as well as we know sacred scripture. Mm -hmm. Tradition and scripture are supposed to be in tandem, hand in hand. So I would venture to ask, first of all, how well do we know the Bible, which is not as well as we should, but also, as well as you know the, the Bible, do you also know the Council of Chalcedon? Do you also know the Council of Trent? Do you know Vatican II? So those things are important as well for our personal holiness. And that's why I mentioned the fact that Catholicism is, is a magnificent, as Chesterton says, it is a grand adventure. Is it a grand and tireless adventure? And it's a lifelong obligation that we have to really actively and dynamically engage in. So for the laity to also, I think, take personal responsibility and to utilize the many tools that have been made available to them by Vatican II, not least of which is the sacred scriptures and the vernacular translations of the councils, as well as the patristic text, mm -hmm. and to really read and to study those. And to go back to the first question we asked, one of your responses was about how mass media um, kind of helped spread the misinformation about Vatican II. Well, the good thing about it is it also gives us the ability to have access to those materials. There's no excuse other than us being too lazy to take advantage of the resources Absol available to us. You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely, there are pros and cons on both sides, and, and it has been amazing to me to think what if Thomas Aquinas <laughs> had access to the patristics that we do now? I mean, imagine what he would have done. He really only had access to a very minimal range of church fathers, mostly Dionysius and Augustine. But other than that, he was very limited in the exposure that he had, not due to his own fault, but just due to the resources available at his time. Mm -hmm. So imagine if he would have had at his disposal the tens of thousands of pages that we currently have at the, our fingertips at the touch of a button to read che, uh, Basil Caesarea, Cyprian of Carthage, Seal of Jerusalem, the catechesis of the ancient times. It's just unbelievable to me. And I mean, I spend hours every single day in study. I love history. And I could never get through it all. That's one of the most frustrating things of all is I'm going to die before I read everything the Catholic Church has. You know? And uh, I'm like, well, Lord, oh, well, I'll read as much as I can before I get to heaven, I there guess. There you go. You know? <laughs> so to wrap things up, um, you know, we covered a lot of ground today. It's a great book. There's a lot here that we didn't touch upon that's in the book. I highly encourage people to get it. The one thing that kind of bubbles to the top throughout this book is that you have, despite how quote-unquote bad things look now, you have hope. So can you speak to yes. that a bit? Absolutely. The enemy, Satan, is very good at making small things or traumatic events seem larger than Christ. And it's very important for us never to fall into that trap. The, the Desert Fathers will call this the demon of Assetia, which they claim is one of the most dangerous demons of all. This is the demon that takes your hope away that makes you believe that somehow evil will win. And I think that demon, unfortunately, has really got his teeth deeply into many hearts of people in the church and outside the church. Satan will not win, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and there are great signs of hope. And we cannot allow ourselves to be despairing, to become resentful or bitter. And I would encourage you, if you, if you read anything, if you listen to anything that makes you resentful, angry, or bitter, 
that's a beautiful invitation of the Holy Spirit to check yourself because those are never fruits of the Blessed Trinity. Mm-hmm. Those are never fruits of grace. So that's something else, too, I think is important as you move forward is saying, Lord, why don't I have hope? What, how have I allowed the enemy to thieve my joy and my freedom? And what can I do to see reality? Because the reality is the Holy Spirit loves his bride, the church, and he's not going to let anything happen to her. Even if we were to have corruption all the way up through the ranks, even if we were to have scandals abound, it would not affect the essence and the beauty of Catholicism. So what we have to focus on more than being despaired or being resentful or bitter towards maybe the failures that have taken place in the recent decades, more importantly, we need to look at where's the spirit calling us? Where's the spirit calling us? Because he'll always have the final word. The final word's already been spoken. That's Jesus Christ. He's the word made flesh. So the victory is already there. What we have to determine now is not whether or not we're going to win or lose. Christ is one. What we need to determine now is how many people are we going to have on the winning side? How many people are we going to tell the truth of Jesus? (laughs) How many people do we want to know about the victory? And that's my hope. My hope is in the victory of the cross of Christ. And I know that the Second Vatican Council is part of that way forward, or else the Holy Spirit would not have convened it. The Holy Spirit would not have called Vatican II if it was not an instrument for evangelization. So there are great signs of hope throughout the church. Please do not despair. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful, beautiful religion of gift. And I, I'm very, very excited. And, um, and we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> we have a lot of work to do. But thankfully, see, I'm the son of a Marine. My father served this country. My brother served this country. I'm a proud patriot. And uh, one thing I always loved about being a military child is raised with this battle-esque kind of mentality, uh-huh. uh, you know, this warfare uh, mentality. And, and I always love a good fight. You know, it wouldn't be any <laughs> fun without a brawl. And, and so it's fun to get in there and to get your hands dirty and, and do what you need to do. But in the end, we know who wins this battle. Amen. So all we have to do is be willing to fight it. <laughs> Father Blake, where can people find your book, Reclaiming Vatican II? You can find it with uh, Ave Maria Press, Word on Fire Press, or anywhere books are found um, and sold. It's available on Amazon and several other sites as well. Um, and I also do encourage you to please follow me on Facebook or Instagram because I offer a lot of uh, free of charge spiritual enrichment opportunities. I give retreats via online, Facebook Live. I give talks, reflections. Just I try to provide as much as I can about the history and theology of Catholicism to as many people as possible for their own personal encounter with Christ and, and the Church. So please follow me through those outlets, and, um, and please buy a copy of the book, and let us all work together to reclaim Vatican II. Fantastic. Father Blake, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule and spending it with us today. Any closing thoughts? Just to end always with gratitude, gratitude to every single person who's listened to this podcast, to this episode, know that you are loved, that the Father has you to come to and everything's okay in the end, because Christ is King. So let us have that hope and that joy and enthusiasm in our hearts and let us be safe for And you listening to Off the Shelf here on Redbox Media. I'm your host, Ben Sox, a Catholic book blogger. And until next time, God bless.